Happy birthday, Medicare. Woo-hoo. Happy birthday, Medicare. Woke <laughs> up with the uh, the GDP fairy left us uh, oh, a yeah, you know, big, right. big present, which is awesome. Huge, uh, huge surprise. Uh, economic devastation. No one could have seen it coming. Hey, out of nowhere. Uh, you know what? Shout out to the deficit hawks in my mentions yesterday telling me that things weren't quite so bad. Uh, just thanks, guys, for being there for me. Really, right. yeah. really appreciate <laughs> your confidence. <laughs> Well, I mean, at least they're consistent, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Always know where you stand. They got one. They wake up in the morning. They got one thing on their mind. <laughs> I think we've, we've got a pretty good episode today. We should go ahead and just like get started, right? Yeah, Let's we're actually going to get around to the deficit in its own particular way. Big. Yeah, Big actually, deficit we will. it'll be full circle. <laughs> yeah, the individual responsibility that we all have for the deficit on all of our shoulders should we ever so much as imagine getting on welfare. <laughs> We've got a really packed episode today, but we also had an amazing patron episode earlier this week. If you want to get access to the weekly bonus episode, go ahead and become a patron and support the show at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Mm-hmm. Um, this week's patron episode, we actually discussed how anti-vaxxer and COVID grifter Zach Bush MD, triple board certified, God. how his ideas ended up front and center in the art world through <clears throat> then we took a close look at welfare reform <laughs> architect Lawrence Mead. Um, if you like this episode, highly recommend going back and checking out Mondays because it does dovet- it dovetails nicely. Mm-hmm. Shall Larry we say. Mead yeah. after hours. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So the the leaked document that we talked about last Thursday was like just the draft of the DNC platform. Um, for background, a DNC panel on Monday voted down an amendment that would have inserted a plank into their platform supporting Medicare for All. It was actually introduced by friend of the panel, longtime single-payer advocate Michael Leidy, who was also one of our guests for Medicare for All Week. DNC platform committee rejected the amendment by a vote of 36 to 125 over a Zoom uh, meeting. I'd I like to say we we sort of called that one. I think in the episode we're like, you know, this is a draft, <laughs> but uh, probably don't expect this to get much better. Uh, and, you know unsurprisingly right this is like you know there's not vote whipping going on on this there's not uh a lot of sort of concerted activity to to like flip votes there's not like really sort of credible threats uh you know to to damage the party in some way if this doesn't get into the platform (laughs) it's sort of a you know perfunctory uh well this is we tried um, and, uh, this is, uh, you know, clearly the, uh, party leadership has no interest in during pandemic doing something that would help millions of people and which has or be popular 70% yeah. support. I think all of the, all of the amazing tables that are just like, here are the things that the democratic party voted down. And here is the <laughs> level of current, like national popular support for them. And it's like, right. Hmm. Is the crisis. Yeah. Is the crisis in American democracy a one-party thing or a two-party thing? You know what? 
two party thing. Absolutely, a obviously. Yeah. Oh yeah. The I mean, most that... bipartisan consensus in history is that they're. I, yeah, uh, you I know, love knock, when we can really all shit, come basically. together on saying "fuck you" to millions of people. It's it's just it's so oh, yeah. heartwarming. Yeah. I mean, I think it's telling what else got voted down as well, which was uh, expanding Medicare to children, um, dropping the Medicare eligibility age to 55 and legalizing marijuana. All from, things from the uh, from what was in the draft, which was 60, which was really funny because the 2016 Democratic Party platform, 55. as Bill pointed out on Twitter, yeah, was like the, like the 2016 platform suggested that they would try to lower the Medicare eligibility age to 55. And this one, which is, you know, again, going to be talked about as the most progressive party platform in Democratic Party history. Uh, Standing at like the history saying, go back, go back. Yeah. Stands up for history saying, you know, maybe that's why we lost in 2016 is that people, you know, I think people, you know, people can people can swallow 60, maybe not 55. You know, maybe 55 is just a fringe too far. Our generous <laughs> ideas about healthcare are too generous. That's why we lost. We have to make sure that we're only making sure that seniors are appreciated at age 60. If you start right. lowering the Medicare age, how will Golden Corral draw a line in the sand yeah. on their unlimited seniors bunch. Everyone could get seniors pricing. When you're 57, you're not really, you're not ready to res- to like accept the responsibility that comes with being on the dole. You're just not, yeah. you know, <laughs> listen, they say, they say that, you know, 60 is, you know, uh, fi- 60 is the new 50 or whatever. Like, and, right. and <laughs> thus we can't give you, uh, you're going to get your AARP uh, magazine, but uh, that's about it. Yeah. Um, you know, you I, know, the minimum age to join AARP is actually 35. Oh, yeah. No, no. Hmm. This is they're really interested in us. They they yeah. want they want us and uh, we don't want them uh, because they're not doing anything to help us on this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nor <laughs> apparently are any of the major union leaders on the yeah. DNC platform committee. Thanks so much. Mary Kay Henry, Randy <laughs> Weingarten. I uh, yeah, really appreciate this. I mean, uh, we should talk about this because obviously, you know, we we can we can like sort of joke this away as this like preordained thing that like was likely to happen. But I think that there is. Um, you know, like we've, we've been talking about this a little bit off mic is like this sort of like there's a there's a fundamental problem happening in here when. So, for example, you know, like the the like suggestion to include uh, an amendment that would put Medicare for all uh, like support for Medicare for all legislation as a plank of the DNC party platform was advanced by Michael Lighty, who who has been mentioned has been on the show before and who was part of Medicare for All Week that we did back in February, um, which if you're a newer listener, I suggest going back and checking that out if you're just like curious to learn some things about Medicare for All. Obviously, I will say that not only because of the pandemic, but for a number of other factors, including the fact that like the Sanders campaign was still going on at that time, it's a very different like Medicare for All Week happened in a very different political very different world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a completely different world. Um, but the the labor union leader uh, leaders like voting against it is is sort of like one thing and that it's ab- like that's absolutely disappointing, especially because publicly speaking, a lot of those unions that they represent specifically did met like met, several of them did specifically support Medicare for all. Yeah, like, like, yeah. Uh, Mary Kay Henry in particular. Right. Uh, but like, you know, what, like 135 people or something? 125 people. Right. Yeah. There's like 125 people. Um, you know, I'm I'm happy that like, you know, people like uh, Michael Lighty or like Abdullah Sayed were in that and were the type of people who can like 
who would advance and sort of like argue for Medicare for all, but there's still not, there's still a fundamental disconnect, which is that there's not any like, and this, this, unfortunately, this is something that is like just obvious if you, if you know anything about the way that these party platforms are done or these parties are run in general, but there's, there is not like an actual, like the voices of like people who actually like need these things, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, are not like, are just categorically not included in these conversations yeah i mean like if you look at the list of people who are voting it's like lots of like former southern uh congressional representatives or like you know as we mentioned like the presidents and officers of both aft nea and seiu all voted no for this it's um it doesn't really feel like amazing to have these have the sort of intellectual direction on these decisions or or what's deemed to be valid enough to put on something as large as the Democratic Party platform to, to have that all be people who maybe are like former representatives that were working 10 years ago or union bosses or just literally not a single person in the room who would need this. Yeah. Right. And I think and I think that like we talked about this a bit on the platform episode, but but that really sort of it illustrates something about the structure of the Democratic Party and about parties in the United States in general, which is like they are not. And let me repeat this over and over again. They are not mass membership organizations. Right. There's there's no real way of holding these people accountable uh, for the decision on this by any kind of mass membership. And so, like, really, what is what is binding them uh, even to, to do something that's that's incredibly politically popular? Nothing, nothing. nothing. And, and unless there's and and, you know, you take that structure and then you. Uh, put that in in the following context, which is that uh, already it's you know these conventions are highly choreographed, uh, stylized sort of events uh, which restrict popular participation. But this year is sort of the uh, in a way boils that down to an essence, uh, buffs mm-hmm. it down to a liquid, which is uh, there's not even a place where people could popularly. Uh, mobilize. This is happening online. Uh, it's happening weeks before the actual physical convention, which will be in very limited form, comes to uh, my home city of, of Milwaukee. Um, and there's like any any possibility for people disrupting uh, this process was it, it wasn't completely eliminated. I'm not saying that there there weren't things that could have been done. I think that there were. And, you know, I'll ultimately, I think when an autopsy of this is done, we should find out what those were. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it, they were really uh, clamped down on. And, and I think the, the party sort of played this in a very sort of classic way, which is like, oh, we'll embargo the text of, of this platform on which people are supposed to like debate and vote and like make amendments uh, until very, very close to the meeting where it's supposed to happen. I mean, it's really just classic stuff uh, yeah. that you see yeah. sort of all the time in these parties. And again, it goes back to the fact that like, you know, I, I guess sort of respect to some extent the position of like, you know, the, the, the dirty break position on like moving in, renting the democratic party's ballot line for the left and like then gradually, right. you know, sort of like reforming it from within. But I mean, I think we should be really honest that there are there are real structural things about what an American political party is that make that prospect or that project um, and it just completely complicate that proposal. And I think really requires a sort of reimagining of 
the mass base of politics. I think I think we also have like a real um, a real problem with sort of limits to uh, the political imagination, even within the left on healthcare issues uh, to a certain extent. I mean, the I'm just thinking I'm just you know, this is making me sort of reflect on even how, uh, you know, even in the 2016 cycle and then up until like, you know, kind of as just the primary was getting started the the sort of like broad understanding and definition of medicare for all didn't even like really include long-term care really mm-hmm. until like when yeah. jayapal's people introduced it uh introduced a, a bill in the house that included long-term care specifically which is like such a core tenet because if you as you talk like as we sort of have mm-hmm. talked about it endlessly like you, you know there, there's literally no in in my mind there, it's like it's so blinkered and ridiculous to think that you could introduce some sort of like national uh you know, full full federal single payer uh, health, but not health system without, care. right? But right. not long term care and leave that out, and then <laughs> just basically be like, okay, great. So we're go- we're going to uh, we're gonna we're gonna take you from cradle to, and then we'll drop you off near your grave. Um, but then, <laughs> you know, you're on the you're on the hook for that, and uh, and like you know, I just but I guess here's what I'm saying basically is that you know. I can assume, for example, that like uh, because it was sort of like a debate and like a sort of fight to begin with as to whether like long term care was incorporated into single payer or into what Medicare for all should be understood as. Right. Right. I can assume that there are and I'm not saying I've like seen them or or no, but I'm just saying I can assume that there are some people who sense like basically every every like angle has been taken under the sun to like dissect the. Um, like the Sanders campaign and the sort of ambitions of the left, I can assume that like there are some people who think that maybe that was like an issue, but actually it seems pretty clear that there was a lot of enthusiasm that sparked specifically after the inclusion the, of long term care, the inclusion of long term care, and the inclusion mm. of like much more of basically a much broader uh, and comprehensive idea of what like yeah. of what Medicare for all could be. And so I'm kind of like you know part of the problem here too is like. Medicare for all single payer itself is like absolutely like a social democratic reform that is the kind of thing that should like that by like by all means, as we've talked about, like should exist in the United States, if only even because like, again, this is not some like fucking crazy leftist thing. Actually, it's like if moderate Democrats were moderate and not right wing, it would be. Like it would have been passed in 1991. Yeah. Like it, it like as as we pointed out on the show, it like pulls better than the Affordable Care Act. You know what I mean? Right, and right. so like Let the, that sink in right. when you and celebrate so, these things. But so like, you know, I think in some ways, um, I think that maybe this conversation won't even be able to necessarily fundamentally change until there is like actually a much more broader, like coordinated vision far beyond Medicare for all so that it's it doesn't end up to this to this point where kind of like it goes up to like the meeting comes and uh, like as, as uh, we've mentioned, like there's no, not even an effort to whip votes and instead sort of, you know, someone who's been fighting for Medicare for all for like 40 years. Right. Yeah. Um, Michael Lighty, like just kind of puts it out there and then it just, it gets like dropped, like, you know, dropped immediately as opposed to like, no, this is, this is like the obvious inevitability. And if we, (laughs) if we don't do at least that, then you know, watch out for this other thing that we all actually want, which is this like, you know, some gigantic reformation. I mean, it's actually interesting that you bring that up, Artie, because like, ironically, 
there are efforts, there have been efforts like in the disability rights movement for years now, since the seventies to try and entrench like, or just pass any type of federal legislation that would pay for like personal assistance services, long-term care, like in-home health or community-based services. And historically any type of federal legislation that attempts to address, um, a federal pay for for long term services has like spectacularly failed over and over and over, over again. And over again. And and especially too when it was being like pushed, as we'll get into later, when it was being pushed by like very neoliberal independent living movementeers who were you know, specifically framing their message to appease people like mainstream party Democrats Joe Biden and the sort of like, you know, uh I, there could be the idea of the specter of long-term care being dead on arrival, right? right like, yeah, and that right. that becoming um, an idea within the left cemented is totally possible and incredibly worrying as a possibility as well. Yeah. But I think the other thing is that, like, the the history of of, of Medicare for all or like universal healthcare, it like emerges out of this problem of like the political economy of, of healthcare changing. And like, it's seen as the solution to the problem of people gradually like losing employer sponsored insurance. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That like basic sort of framing point doesn't deviate that much from like the history of legislation that came before it. The real thing that it, that it lacks is that the problem doesn't stop there. The problem extends (laughs) to the fact that our system, you know, fundamentally incentivizes like rural hospitals in like Cuthbert, Georgia to shut down if they're not profitable. Right. Like, yeah. the, the problem with Medicare for all is that it's not expansive enough of a vision and that it, it doesn't do enough to really rethink uh, the commodification of uh, of health uh, in the United States. And I think that you know, yes, it's like you could argue, OK, it's the, the tip of the spear. But I think when it comes to the sort of coalitional politics uh, of this, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty obvious that the, you know, basically making this into a fight between sort of vested interests within the Democratic Party, including labor unions and right, basically party outsiders it is not a strategy or like it doesn't provide enough terrain for mm-hmm. any sort of, uh, y- you know, negotiation. And, and it's probably the case that like the internal mechanisms of the Democratic Party are not the place where this is going to be won. They're not the field of combat uh, where this this, you know, sort of uh, brokerage is, is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And right. I, I just like the, you know, obviously, I think everyone's like disappointed from from what happened on Monday. But like the question is like, what do you make of it? Is it like, oh, too bad we like lost the vote, and uh, you know we'll, we'll try again next time right. at the same process, or is like, is the problem the way that they're that that we're trying to win it, right? Right. And the institution that we're predicating uh, its success on uh, right. as a, as a sort of first point. Uh, well, because like even these uh, arg- arguments about like the the you know popularity, et cetera, which are you know which are true they do like resolve around this sort of uh this sort of idea of this idea which is actually totally uh or like most of the time that those arguments are made i'll say most of the time that the arguments of like well it's really popular or like our least favorite here like oh well it would save money like the (laughs) 
the fundamental like fundamentally most of the time those arguments end up being used as this thing which actually takes a very like a historical look towards the way that like social change and political change happens which is that like to sort of assume that things happen um at the behest of like either uh the sorry either like you know people actually listening to the demands of their constituents <laughs> Uh, but like, you know, but soft demands, not like not not hard fought, like uh, like mass movement demands, so like people listening to like the preferences that like somehow a benevolent politician just says, I will listen to the inherent preferences of the people that I represent. And then like, boom, like a change happens. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, think, you know, change doesn't necessarily like happen like that. For the most part, I think it happens as we've talked a lot uh, about over the last few weeks like through mm-hmm. uh through a lot of through like civil unrest through um through concrete uh like material demands mm-hmm. right um and unfortunately sometimes throughout american history if you look at things like the passages of the civil rights act it happens actually unfortunately between the like um and this is kind of the thing that maybe in terms of like whether we call it like uh like it being like uh, limited in like social democratic scope or limited in terms of like uh you know actually in some ways despite being called far left as being uh being in in some senses the, like having the the horizon of possibility being relatively reformist actually even though the change would be so fundamental and transformational right. from having Medicare for all. But like the, that, that's why maybe that framework actually echoes in some ways. Um, some of the unfortunate, like for instance, like some of the unfortunate reality of the ways that like other types of, uh, of like political change have happened in the past, which is like, if you think about, um, I think I've told the story on the show before, but like the, the civil rights act, for example, you know, some of the conversations that happened around that were literally things like, you know, uh, there, there's like a, there's a story about MLK speaking to like JFK on the phone about, um, I think it's the poor people's campaign at that mm-hmm, time or, mm-hmm, or before mm-hmm. and, and basically saying like, okay, make me do it and I'll do it. Right. Like you have, you must demonstrate to me, uh, like this thing, like I can't do it without being shown the pressure. And actually that's sort of like that transactional level of like okay uh like do up to this point of civil unrest and then i will yield this like sort of uh this like glimmer of what you kind of what you actually want Mm -hmm. right um i'll I'll like i will give you a i will deliver a concession once you you go up to a certain amount of civil unrest but not too much or something you know is actually also fundamentally part of the problem here i think And, and like as the current democratic party is structured with the sort of like influence that phil you were talking about like where those spheres of influence in terms of like the guiding direction come from like it's just thinking about what does it mean that these unions Union uh, leaders were voting against Medicare for all, right? It's not just the pay for argument. It's not just like scarcity mindset making them, uh, you know, use this argument of like, well, we've fought for all this stuff. What do we want to give up? Blah, 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 blah. You know, it also is actually part of like a much bigger, more powerful conversation that has been happening in the United States a lot longer. And this is something we've been discussing a lot in our reading group. We're doing that. Our next one's on Sunday. We're reading chapter two of Decarcerating Disability at 5 p.m. Eastern during the Discord. (laughs) Um, But like, so the problem with long-term care legislation in the past has been the fact that attendant care is a huge industry, as is the industry of institutions. And a long-term care bill is actually like a bill that would seek to abolish institutions, 
Right. Because when you have the like, especially the home care and the institutionalization. Yeah. Yeah. right. Right. And and so like, you know, if we talk about deinstitutionalization as long-term care, right, um, then that's coming at the expense of, like, nursing homes, public employee unions, right, the kinds of people who who staff the industries that run these things and they're, like, lobbying uh, counterparts way up the line. And so there's been this historic sort of, like, bargain, I think, um, playing out of like, oh, it's not just that this is expensive or saves money. It's like literally that we are like trapped between all of these constituencies. Right. Well, I mean, maybe maybe you could um, clarify something for me, because I was always under the assumption that, you know, when when long term care, major like long term care measures are introduced, what they're really doing is they're, they're proposing a different system of financing, right? They're like, okay, well, we're now going to have like Medicare part E and that's going to finance long-term care. But mm-hmm. I think what you're suggesting is that one of, and, and, and okay, the, the, the classic sort of reason is like, oh, that's so expensive because long-term care is so expensive. Uh, or, right. you know, if you structure it as like a private benefit, the premiums are crazy because no one buys it until it's, you know, until they need it. But I think what you're saying is that it's it's not just like the cost or the pay for canard that is the obstacle here, but it's there's an industry that whose whose survival uh, depends on the current financing structure. And if you were to really massively change the way that the financing worked, they would be uh they would be uh, diminished. Is that right? Yeah. And that like that it's not just the pay for in the sense of like the final bill and the, you know, metaphorical taxpayers ledger or whatever, whatever, like the people who are like at the table are also considering the influence of deinstitutionalization on the like union counterparts. Like if we do community based attendant care, like if we push for the same like crappy long term care bill, they tried to get passed in 1999. Right. That would like affect. SEIU employees that would affect um, all sorts of public sector unions that would affect people like the guy who owns the most long-term care centers like in the United States and so we've we've had like the further like entrenchment and monopolization of these industries that have like constituencies at the table right who would also be massively affected by deinstitutionalization which would occur as a result of comprehensive federally funded community-based long-term care so it's Actually, in a lot of ways, Medicare for all is a spear, but only because it contains long term care and would be the only meaningful like attack on our institutionalized state and the way that we treat disabled people that we've had since like the 70s, maybe, you know? Well, since the initial deinstitutionalization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand why it scares people. And I understand why Democrats might think it won't work because, frankly, they probably have people there who felt like it was way too much of an ask to include that. Well, maybe that's you know. a maybe that's a good uh, point to uh, have us start to sort of like transition uh, into our next sort of thing, because much as it is today, the 55th anniversary of Medicare <laughs> itself, uh, Sunday was also the 30th anniversary of um, show favorite, the Americans with Disabilities Act. 
right? Yeah. So the ADA turned 30 on Sunday, which is July 26th. It's, I always like to laugh that I'm like six months and 17 days older than something that does nothing to support me. But um, yeah, I mean, like when, when Congress passed it in 1990, uh, supporters hailed the ADA as like a radical shift in um, the way that policy affected the lives of people with disabilities. And I'd argue that they were right, but not necessarily in the way that they meant. <laughs> Um, I think a good way to sort of get into our conversation about the ADA could be like starting on this ADA 30 campaign. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. So, you mean, because uh, you've you've sort of telegraphed, I think, some of your criticisms yeah. in particular. Um, <laughs> be, uh, but I think that like, yeah, that's pro- that probably makes the most sense is to like actually talk first about how it's sort of been to put i guess to put what we'll probably say about the context in which the ada was created and how it's been used over the last 30 years uh, which is sort of our own ada 30 our own tribute to the ada um you know to put that sort of in context to the actual sort of tributes that have been happening which you know um i think for the most part have been you know personally as we'll as we'll sort of get into i think part of the part of part of the issue that we have is is simply that it just does not go far enough but i think that like i think what for instance these um the new york times ada 30 uh mm-hmm. sort of like tribute package go shows i think what that shows is that for the most part a lot of people look at the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, especially people who uh, are not disabled people, people who, or people who, you know, maybe don't either don't, I I was going to say don't know a disabled person or maybe don't even like know someone who they don't, who is disabled in their life, but they don't think about or consider their position at all. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Which I think is really a thing. Um, The like, uh, I, I think it is looked at as this sort of like oh and then in 1990 or maybe they don't know when it happened like oh and then in 1990 we did it and we guaranteed and uh like rights for the disabled and um that was all that they could ever need and it's good because it's sort of like the way that people think that like in the 60s racism was solved you know right right not 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 a lot of people think that but you know as 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 we uh as we discussed in our conversation about larry mead from monday's episode many people unfortunately believe that racism is solved and that it's ridiculous into their social science and they're like and why are you asking for more what's wrong with you right i mean whether or not they i mean whether or not they talk about it whether or not they talk about believing that it was solved i mean you only have to look at the Fakakta like textbooks that they read which until you know several years ago didn't mm-hmm. even talk about like the idea of like oh you know what maybe actually maybe a yeah. third reconstruction would be good uh i mean it's just like it really is talked about as like triumphalist and it's like so you don't even have to like consciously think that but uh you know everything the, the, like the socialization process especially for white middle class you know people is like oh yeah well mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah definitely good. there's a lot of like social reproduction of yeah of the end of history <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um i guess i mean in a lot of ways i kind of felt like this ada 30 was unintentionally a way to represent every model of disability except for Marta Russell's money model of disability, which mm. is the only one based in like abolition and that addresses the industries that profit off the bodies the of disabled and incarcerated people. Yeah. yeah. But like, if you think about like the kind of uh, articles that the uh, New York times 
accumulated for this. They, you know, they go through the identity model. There's a non-disabled person interviewing disabled people who are inspiring. There is, mm. uh, you know, a very medicalized model. There is, uh, you know, obviously lots of stuff about the social model. But like, you know, this there was this one that I think would be a really good starting point so this was like well for context this was like a package it was of a different package. stories yeah. about i mean it's like interesting because the when we'll get into this later the the packet itself is not super accessible um because of design decisions but <laughs> one of the criticisms that you've seen a lot online from from disabled people has been that this really does not feel like it was done in consultation um from a curatorial standpoint with anyone who was disabled it was more of like the idea it felt very much like a bunch of people who maybe were able-bodied and had some knowledge of disability through one lens who were all brought to a table and pitched something kind Mm -hmm. of thing it's it's very weird in a lot of ways and one of those stories that got through that very large uh sieve is something that uh if you had a disabled person in in the editorial process would have literally never made it to press because it has so many recurrent tropes in it that are so incredibly damaging. So one of these articles that was included uh, is absolutely disgusting. It is called When Caring for Your Child's Needs Becomes a Job All on Its Own. For some parents, the work outside the home is impossible as they navigate complicated and frustrating systems for help, but they don't have to do it alone. Some parents (laughs) are not able to contribute to the line and we must make them able to contribute to yeah. the line. <laughs> so it's it's so like. So wait, wait, is that like a is that like a okay? So as part of our celebration of the Americans with Disabilities Act, at at you know having passed thirty years ago, we're going to what print a thing about how it's like a burden to have a disabled child. What the fuck? Uh, yeah. Legitimately, like yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I know it's not there. It's, it's really actually not that surprising. But it's, I mean, it it reminds me of the thing that they published a while ago, which was the sort of um, what was it? Uh, there was that there was that op-ed that they or not op-ed. There was that like romance column or whatever that they published where um, they, oh, right, they, yeah. they did the headline was like, is it okay to like like is it okay to break up with this guy because yeah. he has Crohn's disease and might become right. more disabled later? Exactly. And the, the advice columnist was like. Sweetie, you do you. It was not on you to accept a burden when you were looking for a romantic partner. Blah, blah, blah. Lovely. Yeah, so this is in that vein. Um, This this article, you know, does address some very um, tangible and serious issues. Um, This article could have been like a scathing indictment of the lack of support for parents. It could have been about the lack of public health resources and housing in New York City. It, you know, it should probably be about the pillaging of municipal budgets by police departments and other bootlickers while public education and health departments are just left to starve under unnecessary austerity. But instead, it details actually... um just the emotional difficulties of being a parent of a child with disabilities and makes an equivalency that if you have disabled children, you will probably be poor and homeless. Yeah, that, the singular quality of the New York Times article is at the end of the article, you feel vaguely bad about something, <laughs> but you're not sure at all what one... It's like the, the, the end of every New York Times article is like you look over at your sort of also put upon uh, partner as you you know scarf down very nice muffins and orange <laughs> juice and you're just like huh. <laughs> well, yeah. what could possibly be done i mean they give you such lines as 
Parents of children with disabilities often face an agonizing choice, working outside the home or caring for their children. Well, let's say you're sitting with your partner in your Connecticut mansion drinking your orange juice and you turn to your partner and you say, oh, maybe that's why Lisa's been so, you know, late to work recently because her child has ADHD. She probably <laughs> shouldn't be working. Maybe, maybe she's the one I should lay off next, right? I mean, honestly, this frames this right. as, as a legitimate choice that a working parent for a child with disabilities is somehow choosing to not care for their child well, and to work the, instead. And that's on the individual and has absolutely nothing to do with the political economy or like right. entrenched ableism. Oh, or anything and it like frames that. it as often these people try to juggle working and they just can't right. because so, disabilities are too hard. So, so just to make this a little more concrete, can I read you guys some quotes from the text? Please, yeah. So yeah. I want to I want to tell me. you guys about um, a woman who is identified uh, with the last name Williams, who um, is 46 and lives in Brooklyn and is currently houseless. She says these last two years have been the most horrific of my life. Um, Mrs. Williams' son Rashid, 15, and her twins Isis and Adonis are nonverbal. The twins are also incontinent. In 2018, they were evicted from their Brooklyn apartment. The co-op board gave several reasons, among them that Isis, who had been playing with a faucet in the apartment, caused a flood in the building. Shakima, 26, her oldest daughter, said she believed the eviction was illegal and the faucet was faulty. After losing the apartment, losing the apartment, mm -hmm. and running out of money. Mm -hmm. Four hotels. The family entered the city's shelter system. Uh, Miss Williams said she had a hard time seeing a way out, a weight that in turn has affected her ability to press for help. The emotional and physical fatigue that parents experience along with work schedules makes it more difficult for them to meet with school officials who make critical decisions on class placements and financial supports for special education. The responsibility for care most often falls to mothers. More study is needed, but researchers have found that fathers sometimes have difficulty making a connection with their children with disabilities, often leaving the bulk of parental duties to mothers. Okay. Oh. So the entire premise of that paragraph really is what Artie said <laughs> before, which is like, yes, your disabled child is the problem. It's not like blaming things on systems. It's not like, nope, that's, that's what it says. Yep. Yeah. Good it blames God. failures in the system on like it's I think it's really interesting, like the problems that are identified here. Let's take the uh, weird comment about teacher meetings. Right. So it identifies the fact that, um, you know, they that financial support for special education is very difficult to achieve. Right. And that it's like very scarce and that to do it, there is significant burdens and reporting requirements, which are difficult for single parents, especially when they have no child care and they are working multiple jobs and have no home. Right. But instead of framing that as like, why is it that the school is so underfunded that it cannot like accommodate the needs of this mother who clearly has needs? Why is it that, you know, we allow people like this to be without a home, right? Instead, yeah. it's like, yeah, but because she has these disabled children and it's difficult to care for them, she can't even go to the meetings that would get them what they need. Right. And it would seem that like that set of parameters, which are just sort of assumed here, which are part of the, the sort of genetic code of this article are very much inscribed within the legal framework that defines and reifies what disability is, how it like functions in society and like what the relationship between the state and disabled people 
uh, is, right? Yeah. So if that like quote uh, doesn't make it obvious enough that disabled people were not super involved in this process, um, I would like to bring up a thread posted by uh, Liz Jackson, um, who like works for uh, disabledlist.org. So they like put together lists of like disabled people you could hire, resources, they do consulting. And so they had been hired by the New York Times to consult on accessibility for this series. And they were they started consulting with them in February to work on this package in particular. They raised a few issues about what was going on in terms of like the determination of like what was going to be the standard for making things accessible, particularly in terms of like alt text for images. And there was sort of the classic response of like these cripples are asking for way too much, mm. you know, and New York Times basically ghosted them completely like ghosted these wow. two people. Yeah. In the sense um, that they had a contract for services which they did not honor. They didn't end up, I mean, it's unclear if they even ended up using the work product um, that they had provided for them. And, you know, then at the end of the day, New York Times never planned to credit them, never responded when they were like, hey, can you can you let us know if you're going to credit us or not? Right. Um, and then the article came out and they weren't credited. And and part of the thing that's or the series, the series came out and they weren't credited. And part of the thing that's like the most gross about it is that they were raising issues about framing of the articles. Right. They were consulting on content because content affects the alt text. Right. Right. You know, if you need to be thinking about alt text and design, you also need to have some sense of what the content's going to be. So as they start running into these issues with the content that's being prepared as it relates to the alt text, and they raise their very serious concerns, seemingly, frankly, from from what it seems, I don't have a confirmation, but from what it seems, these are the only two disabled people that New York Times is in contact with from a planning standpoint on this project, right? Not just like a source. And then they ghost them for raising an issue probably having to do with articles like this. I mean, that's probably that's pretty consistent with what seems to be the overall editorial vision here, considering that, like, you know, if the if the editorial uh, if like if this sort of opinion piece or whatever is also essentially saying, you know, there's one thing that you didn't even like get to when you're talking about it, but the like. It's not just, it's not merely, the article does not merely situate, oh, isn't it like, isn't the, the disabled child a burden on the parent? It also basically says like, isn't it, it goes on to state that like, essentially, isn't it so great when then that like disabled child can like get a sub minimum wage mm-hmm. job and then like help the parent out basically yeah. uh, financially right. um, while retaining benefits. And it's like, uh, <laughs> isn't it great when the child can contribute to GDP? Isn't, isn't that it, awesome? Right? Isn't right? it great when from uh, from the family level to the editorial board of the New York Times, the the uh, the like marginalized population is viewed as an object? Right? Oh yeah, I of mean, course. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it's just really it's really telling, and and I think it's kind of interesting because it does really reflect the kinds of things that we were we were talking about a little bit earlier in the context of Medicare for All, which is the sort of like role that disability justice has in the overall federal healthcare debate. And, you know, I think considering like, you know, ADA 30th anniversary, right. Um, it's kind of embarrassing that, that we're still working with this and that we are still 30 years later at the level of discourse where this is acceptable for the New York times to publish something yeah, where like true. literal eight, eight and nine year old children will forever have their like legal names in this 
horrific indictment of their identities and like rights to be alive. Right. Well, and that it's passed off as and uh, that it's passed off as this very characteristic form of you know American sympathy in literary form, um, you know, and it's uh, of course. you know I think that that's the again I feel like the 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 sort of like the DNA of the New York Times is to take any issue where you could potentially uh, begin to look at a sort of existing structure critically and then just turn it into a lifestyles piece <laughs> yeah, from no, the perspective totally. of like a neo-Victorian. Yeah. 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 From officer involved shooting to lost their home as opposed to yeah. <laughs> shirt printing company. Right. Exactly. Not, yeah, <laughs> yeah not, not sweatshop. Right. Yes. Absolutely not sweatshop. Exactly. Definitely never, never sweatshop. But I, I think it's important to, to talk about what the ADA actually is maybe because i don't think that a lot of people know actually what the legal scope of the ada is and what the intent behind that piece of legislation actually was in terms of preventing discrimination one thing we talk about all the time is that there is no ada police there's no one to call and report an ada violation which is which is why those anti-maskers with their little homemade cards that say that they are disabled and protected from wearing a mask (laughs) under the you know hip pa and ada yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah that's why they're so funny totally yeah i mean the, the ada itself comes out of a legacy of advocacy for you know independent living and inclusion in the workforce that sort of started after the deinstitutionalization movement really got rolling in the 50s and 60s. In the 70s, you start seeing um, like the push in the United States to really try and like guarantee rights in terms of offering employment protection. So you have um, in 1973, you have Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which is pretty important because this is kind of like a, a foundational uh, piece of legislation for disability justice. And what it what it did was basically say that no one solely by reason of disability could be excluded from participating in or being denied benefits of any federal financial assistance program. So sort of granting a, a bare minimum right of citizenship to disabled people in order to collect things like food stamps. Basically. Yeah. So basically taking I mean, taking this sorry, taking the citizenship of disabled people, which is already highly conditional. Right. And right. circumscribed and limited and making it. And historically, incredibly limited, uh, considering that, you know, prior to that and what, like uh, until like the 40s, there were what were called ugly laws, which Between essentially kept most disabled people from being able to really to like literally kept them from being able to like basically be outdoors and be elements of public life. Uh, Yeah. yeah. It's actually between 1867 and 1974, multiple cities in the United States had what's called unsightly beggar ordinances, uh, also known as ugly laws, um, which deemed it illegal for any person who is diseased, maimed, mutilated, or deformed in any way as to be unsightly or disgusting to expose themselves to public view, which in practice 
um, was used as justification to continue to incarcerate disabled people in uh, institutional facilities and out of public view. It was literally illegal to be um, like an amputee in public in certain cities until 1974 if you Jesus. weren't covering um, the limb that had been affected. Right. So, you know, the sort of demand on respectability, um, the demand to have disabled people be made fully invis- invisible from general public society has been at the core of sort of the the foundations of like our social state in the United States really through the 70s. And so what a lot of these laws um, that have been sort of framed as a way to protect disabled people from literally anything that could possibly put them in danger are more actually addressing these laws of like strict isolation and discrimination Mm-hmm. as well as trying to facilitate the translation of that population, which is seen as sort of a surplus population that only provides value to GDP in terms of how it supports the industries that care for them, which then in turn provide GDP, right, um, into people who can contribute to GDP themselves independently, right? right. So, you know, like at its core, uh, the ADA has sort of two general uh, sort of sweeping general premises. One is anti-discrimination and uh, sort of a right of action uh, for discrimination on the basis of uh, disability. And we can talk about how it defines disability, which has changed over the years Mm -hmm. and like changed pretty substantially in 2008. Uh, But there's a sort of anti-discrimination prong and then the other side of it is accommodations. Which I think is what people think about a lot when they think about the ADA, which is like... Yeah, people think about, yeah, public transportation, um, th- those sorts of things. But these are two very different purposes of the law, and they work very differently. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, like, after 2008, what kind of... What way the law classifies you as disabled has an effect on what rights you have under the law, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a very sort of bizarre and kind of confusing uh, thing. Yeah. I mean, structurally, it also set up a lot of things pertaining to like uh, updating FCC regulation and including things that, um, you know, required like TTY teletype machines added to like public hotlines. So what it actually is sort of um, offering and, and like, augmenting are um, almost like just lots of ways that like disabled people could possibly interact with the market as consumers in my mind is like how I often think about it. So like the ADA affects like where and how I shop, what websites I can shop on, what buildings I can enter or not enter, you know, what jobs I can have, my right to keep a job, uh, my right to not face retaliation for disclosing my disability at a job. But the burden on me to uh, enforce by rights is something that I must do like in a litigious uh, situation because this is all like basically the burden is on the disabled person to like sue threaten to sue um, when yeah. these requests are not yeah, fulfilled. It's not really like positive F, like affirmative like protections right? Yeah can yeah. I make a comparison so like yeah. the Voting Rights Act when it was really working uh, it wasn't the Voting Rights Act of 1965 I should say it wasn't just that you had to like sue under Title II to to uh, claim that someone had prevented you from exercising your right to vote. Uh, they actually had a uh, civil rights division at uh, the Justice Department 
which prevented uh, states and uh, municipalities from putting into place uh, new uh, rules that would further um, uh, prevent people from uh, going to the polls and, and, and furthering discrimination if they had a history of it. So like there was a VRA police uh, right until 2013. Um, well, there was like, yeah. And then for when we, and when, you know, when we say police, there was like an enforcement, there was some, or as yeah, a, an enforcement, there was, there was like, a yeah, there, there were, there were people, there were like, there were people whose responsibility it was to see that this was like upheld relative, like m- more proactively than anything that happens with the ADA currently or has mm-hmm. in its 30 year history. I think yeah. it's fair to say actually like to, and to that point in a way, uh, how to put it, like I, I was looking at it cause I was curious. So in, for instance, like, you know, after the reforms that, um, Phil mentioned in 2008, there was like between 2010 and 2017, um, there were like 200, there were 200, around 250,000 cases, citing disability or discrimination or medical discrimination under the ADA for like employment violations, for example, mm-hmm. of those only of those, uh, like quarter million over like that, you know, that seven year period, um, only 2% of those ended up having a discrimination, mm-hmm. um, finding, uh, 21% ended in either a settlement charge or a change to work conditions, even though like, you know, that so that the difference there is pretty vast, like, which is interesting. I guess that some of that may mean that like settlements are very common. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, uh, but then before that, before those reforms, even it was something like, um, it was like the, those, uh, those, that like level of success that like 21% was like 7%, which, um, it's been noted was basically like, comparable or only kind of like second to the sort of like failure rate of uh, plaintiff cases by the incarcerated Mm. basically Mm. so we're talking you know essentially like second only to incarcerated people and basically being denied like basic rights as a sort of block Mm. you know what i mean uh well and when i say second only i mean in terms of like this case percentage thing obviously which is is, is like not a not a like that that's not the only indicator or whatever uh so i'm just saying as the as like uh ada cases have wound their way through the court um in the past 30 years actually some really dangerous decisions that have been made and set up some pretty gross precedents with just like bad judicial interpretations of this law as well yeah can I set something yeah. up for so I think actually we like we made some uh you know declarative statements about the the ADA and some of the some of the like not only just sort of like what it does but what some of the intentionality is here but I think it's it mm-hmm. bears a, it you know what let's let's again as I said before let's do the sort of like this is our sort of or death panel tribute if you will to the ADA mm-hmm. Uh, I think to look at the context in which it was initially passed is actually really telling. Um, mm-hmm. Not only the some of the stuff that be brought up before with um, the sort of uh, prevailing and pre-existing history with like Section 504 and how the and how the sort of decarceration movement was done uh, in like the decades prior as the sort of like you know interestingly like sort of paternalistic gesture i guess uh by the state is how it's interpreted by a lot of scholars but there's a there's a disconnect i think between how the law is often talked about and how it was sort of talked about initially which actually i think since we started with the conversation about medicare for all i think Mm -hmm. does kind of come parts of this come full circle into stuff that we have talked about a lot in a in a really interesting way and are maybe instructive uh for Mm -hmm. some things going forward because for example like because the ada is is about 
you know, civil rights protections for disabled people, however, also is largely couched, I think, in as as you, you guys were talking about in sort of like civil rights as regards, especially like especially employment participation and sort of like, uh, I don't know, American market society, basically, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. The framework, though, that it was argued under is like mm-hmm. very interesting um as is like pointed out by this um this legal paper that was we've been kind of like passing around um and i think it's really instructive to just like read some of the things that were entered as like sort of into the public argument mm-hmm. around the ada at the time before it was before it was passed um again because i think it you'll some of this will be familiar to you in like really <laughs> distressing ways i think so, for example, I don't know if I'm ready for this, but I'm so ready for this. What better way to celebrate the ADA? But like the, 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 but the point of doing this, but the point of like tracing this history out, right, is that like, as often happens with legislation, there's social movements that's, that are swirling around demands. Then those demands somehow cross the transom into like the formal political arena. And they, they don't always come through in the same like in Pet Cemetery, like the, <laughs> the thing that comes back to life after it crosses the transom is not necessarily the thing that left life. Right. Right. Then Absolutely. I'll just say this is my this is my gift to help you understand the more like neoliberal facets of disability justice. Yeah. How about that? Basically, it appears that a lot of the national conversation around what became the ADA, unfortunately, was very much couched in um, this fundamental idea that those who like disabled people, those who can uh, should like should be given rights and protections uh, in the workplace, specifically as like an encouragement mechanism to make to like Mm -hmm. make them to make it so that there would be more disabled people working and as a result, less of them would be on welfare rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'll say how this like comes about sp- specifically. So, for instance, Tony Coelho, uh, Coelho, oh, uh, my favorite, <laughs> yeah, who was uh, the principal sponsor of it in the house, uh, says, "quote said quote uh, of it, our entire society bears the economic burdens of this prejudice. Dependency Ooh. is expensive." It increases Oof. benefit entitlements and decreases productive capacity sorely needed by uh, the American economy. That's, a, that's like the most 1988 thing I've ever heard besides like Back to the Future 2. Yeah. That's like, that's... Tony Coelho also said, uh, Coelho also said, um, quote, we are not looking for welfare. We mm. are not looking for something that other people do not have. We know that there is going to have to be accommodations to give us our basic civil rights. We know that. We understand that. There is a cost involved. But isn't there also a cost involved with us not being able to exercise our rights? There mm. is tremendous cost to the government right now in maintaining a lot of us with disabilities because we do not have our basic rights. So it's fundamentally this is and this is sort of the, the thing. There's a lot of, like there's a lot there. Um, and some some of the things that I'll read state this more explicitly. But basically, there was this diametric opposition put uh, mm-hmm. put toward the American public, which I think fundamentally is just it is totally invalid. Um, right. which is that like it take it takes an explicitly narrow imagination i think an incredibly narrow imagination to say that like like w- any form of like welfare support for like disabled people or mm-hmm. chronically ill people for example 
should be like should essentially you know not be done by the state if they can like also like there's no there's no reason to not have like an expansive uh set of like like massive welfare benefits for like for practically everyone regardless of whether they work or not mm-hmm. you know what i mean i mean like, like just just think of the things that like the ada left out right like one of the things it, it, you might be wondering right now is like, why wasn't there something in the ADA to address like risk pool selection from insurance companies? Mm-hmm. What is the point of getting a job and entering the mainstream workforce if you could potentially be denied from your employer-based insurance for your pre-existing condition? Yeah. Especially when you know that a lot of disabled people need to be on like Medicare or Medicaid because at the time you could be denied for that. Right. Not that that's really changed for the ACA, but you so know. Then- Right. So then, uh, and there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff, um, explicitly to, you know, the, the law passed under George H.W. Bush. Um, it's explicitly talked about a lot as like sort of this like big bipartisan effort. Um, and so, you know, some of the, some of the people even who are like disability activists who were testifying in this, in these like things were using these very conservative arguments and, it, yeah. and that stuff got parroted ultimately by, um, by like a lot of people from a lot of different uh, like political positions, basically. So, for example, here's a quote from Justin Dart, uh, who is a who this article cites as a disability activist and wealthy Republican who who testified uh, to Congress saying, "quote The ADA is an authentic issue for conservatives. It is a, the status quo. <clears throat> it is the status quo discrimination and segregation that are unaffordable, that are preventing persons with disabilities from becoming self-reliant, and that are driving us inevitably toward economic and moral disasters of giant paternalistic welfare bureaucracies." Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's worth remembering that this law passes uh, about four years after the passage of something called Graham-Rudman-Hollings, which is the first time that Congress basically creates a a set of like emergency style provisions that would allow automatic budget cuts to be made without any democratic oh, like God. legitimacy. Cool. Um, and 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 it doesn't it doesn't work uh, by any means. But what it does is it it creates this threat of budget sequestration that hangs over policymaking. And then it's sort of revised in 1991. But by, if we're we're talking about like 1988 through 1990, there are two things that are like very, very important contextual things. Like the budget is, uh, and the budget deficit is now seen as an object that's like, Oh, we have to deal with this. And people are talking about it in the context of like, you know, this is as important as like any like civil rights legislation. Like this is this is like a moral importance, right? Right. That's why you have like the debt clocks and things like that. Cool. Um, <laughs> but the other, but the other thing is like this is, you know, five years after one of the largest attempted purges of the SSDI rolls in the history of the program. Mm-hmm. Right. And well, under under Reagan in in uh, I think the end of the first term, and so this is. You know, it's coming in the context where like these arguments about sort of dependency, illegitimacy um, and the uh, the relationship between those things and this unsustainable object <laughs> right. which suddenly now matters as if it's a real thing in the world um, are very much on the minds. I mean, people I mean, like in oral histories of like legislation at people are, you know, talking around this time about how suddenly it's like if you put something out and then it got like a score uh, that like suggested any sort of deficit uh, increase that you would just be embarrassed right. uh, that your like reputation would would suffer. 
Um, and oh so, my God. yeah, this is like entirely makes sense. These is rationalizations for uh, for the law. Definitely. And let me just uh, let me just try and like rapid fire get through because I, I was trying to make sure I could uh, sort through my some of the things that I had pulled from this because there's just there, there were like so, so many much. things that I got a little overwhelmed <laughs> trying to like capture the <laughs> capture the like the sort of most damning ones almost. But let me just uh, let me just like kind of rapid fire get through uh, uh, a couple of these so that we can kind of like move on past it. Cause I think, I think, I do think that reading some of this like primary stuff receipts, is, yeah. yeah, these receipts are like important to look at, to be like, yes, in fact, this was actually sort of, unfortunately what the conversation and seemed to end up resolving around. And it's something actually to totally avoid in the future and to understand as a precedent, I think for exactly why it is so important to go above and beyond mm -hmm. something like the ADA and Medicare um, for all frankly. and Medicare for all in the future. So, uh, for example, um, uh, Timothy Cook, uh, who was uh, one of the lawyers um, arguing, uh, testified, quote, if we if we get people off public assistance and paying taxes, it unquestionably is going to bring down the deficit. Mm. Um, here's a quote from the article which I've been uh, citing from, which is from the, an old article from the William and Mary Law Review, uh, which is called um, the ADA as I think the ADA is welfare reform, um, quote, testifying before the House Judiciary Committee, James Brady, the former Reagan press secretary paralyzed by John Hinckley's bullet. <laughs> uh, so we have a whole nice, interesting historical uh, corollary Tie in there. to Reagan. Tie in. Uh, endorsed the views of President Eisenhower, who had initially opposed a broad social security disability insurance program. So Eisenhower, who had fundamentally not wanted SSDI. Uh, quote, Eisenhower warned us that such programs like SSDI increase the dependency of disabled people. He urged instead that it would be far better if people with disabilities became taxpayers and consumers and thus reduce the terrible ah. costs to society. Maybe Beatrice isn't jumping on logical leaps and is actually on to something <laughs> with the framing of this argument and why the ADA constantly feels inadequate for people with disabilities. Sounds to me like you're talking to some people in your DM right now and not to the fine listeners of our program it sounds but to me like if you dm me like that i do block you so no, I, I can only take so much emotional stress um, another quote from this uh quote the coverage of the statute in the new york times is typical um which here's another historical through line i guess i didn't even think about that in an editorial applauding the new statute on the day after president bush signed the ada into law the new york times noted the following crucial point about the costs and that's quote unquote crucial point um, about the costs and benefits of implementing the statute. Quote, the federal government now spends $57 billion every year on benefits for the disabled. That figure will surely shrink if the disabled have greater access to jobs. A year, so do this so we can spend less money on the disabled. So we have to, we have to support those, those like poor souls less who are, who shouldn't be my, our problem, but are, I guess is the, is the argument here. No, one of my favorite things too, is that like, when you look at evaluations of the law in like the years following that, uh, like one thing the CBO has to do in addition to, um, uh, like evaluating the, the direct costs of the law is that they have to evaluate the cost of implementing any mandates, like unfunded mandates, right. state and local governments or like private actors. And like notably in like the 2008 CBO report on the, the amendments is like, uh, yeah, there's Congress isn't requiring, uh, really any mandates enough to us to warrant us even doing the analysis. Oh my God. Which gives you a sense of how weak the enforcement is. Interesting. Uh, wow. So it, it continues. Uh, 
quote, um, a year earlier, while the ADA bill was pending on the Senate floor, the Times ran an op-ed by James Brady entitled Save Money, Help the Disabled. In that piece, also, this will sound very familiar to you, unfortunately, if you are a Medicare for all person. Yeah. Um, in that piece, Brady argued, as he had in as he had in the congressional hearings, the ADA could save could quote save taxpayers billions of dollars by outlawing discrimination, putting disabled people on the job rolls, and thereby re- and and thereby reducing government disability payments. Unquote. Cool. After the Senate passed the legislation, the Times ran a letter to the editor, written by Tom Harkin, headed how to help the disabled pay their own way. So this is like the, unfortunately, like I don't, you know, I'm not happy about this. Obviously, unfortunately this is the ideological framework in which this was basically brought across the, uh, the transom as, as Phil likes to. It's, it's funny to think about uh, Eisenhower's opposition to SSDI and how that's then like reproduced socially through the disabled survivor of Reagan who tried to purge the SSDI roles assassination attempt, which was unsuccessful. Who then gives testimony trying to reframe and like support this new left neoliberal disability justice movement, which was like focused on a redefinition of independent living, especially when you consider what we were talking about earlier with like the fact that like including long term care in Medicare for all is a type of deinstitutionalization and that that also challenges like various uh, other business interests outside of the framework of simply the healthcare industry right it touches on so much i mean one of the things we've been talking about in reading group is the is the point of like how ssdi did so much to advance um, deinstitutionalization that it's like almost more effective than the policy changes that went in to try and regulate deinstitutionalization. Right. It's it's absolutely amazing to to just think about like how this framework it fits into so many things. It it starts to feel like okay, yeah, you could say that like healthcare is an industry or whatever, but like healthcare and capitalism are completely intertwined. Right. There yeah. is no separation for it. Like if if in a lot of ways like. All of these industries tie together to just prepare people to be workers, whether they're landlords or doctors or hospitals or prisons, right? These are all like components of capitalism that are there to like interface with public health to perpetuate the social reproduction of the workforce. Right. Right. So like, you know, the sort of structural barriers to people with disabilities don't just represent structural barriers for the like class of people who are surplus population. It also like extends those structural barriers to the working class because it provides such an example of precarity that it's like, motivating to maintain like your ability to remain in the workforce because the alternative is like they make it look worse and worse yeah i I mean i also want to point out that i think this fundamental framework too this i the idea for example of especially like the idea of like uh setting up a like a binary of like these two things opposed to each other which is like you know welfare (laughs) support like fundamental like support for uh the disabled and like you know um the Versus protecting like the disabled from uh, discrimination in the workforce or like, or, you know, like protecting their ability to become part, like part of like the working class or workers, right? Like those, I think that that, I think that that binary actually to like, to me, I want to like, just kind of circle back and make more explicit the thing we were mentioning with Medicare for all, which is that like, 
the all the times that we have sort of made fun of the pay for argument with mm-hmm. Medicare for all, like in part, this is why actually like yeah. the, the idea and we've, you know, we've been explicit about this, but the, to, to, to like tie it together, actually um, like we've been explicit about this in the past, but to, to tie it together in this context, like when you do the thing of saying, Oh, you know, here's okay. So Medicare for all, and here's the financing plan and it's going to, and you foreground, you know, that it's going to save money as opposed to things like, um, you know, there is a political, uh, there is a political demand for it. And also it is like sort of a, basically a moral necessity and, uh, you know, and like also we could do this. Wouldn't this be a better way to do things? You know, all the, all the other arguments, right. When you foreground that economic argument of, and it's going to be cheaper, you also set essentially the expectation that can lead to fundamentally the program breaking down in the future, because let's say actually that, um, you know, actually as Tim, uh, Faust pointed out in his book, health, uh, health justice now, and as, as uh, I've seen other, others pointed out, um, in the, in the past, you know, if like we pass Medicare for all, if we pass Medicare for all and like more people suddenly like used healthcare and mm-hmm. actually the calculation was like a bit different and it wasn't, you know, overall quote unquote cheaper, even though if it was all done through federal dollars, it would just be meaningless basically. You know what I mean? But like basically if it was, you know, quote unquote more expensive at the end of the day, that would actually be like phenomenal because more people would be should getting be registered as a good thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It should be registered as a good thing because that means that there was a tremendous unmet need this, unfor- but then like the, the making it about like, it will be cheaper. Like, wow, let's, let's my, 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 what I guess I'm saying is like, it's, it's fundamentally just really, it's really kind of sad that, mm-hmm. uh, it's been 30 years since the ADA. We haven't like, we have had, there, there are significant, um, changes that were done as we've mentioned in 2008, but that like the, some of the significant advancements that could have, have happened in terms mm-hmm. of both, uh, increased well, like welfare for, um, disabled people. And in terms of like increased civil rights protections for disabled people have not been mm-hmm. done. Um, and the fundamental framework in which they were last done, which is, you know, being, lauded now was under the was under the impetus of let's make sure that essentially we can just sort of like you know trim down the welfare state a little Mm -hmm. bit Mm -hmm. you know um it's it's frustrating it is and and like to tie it back into the point i was making earlier about like you know it's a really oppressive social framework to be growing up as an adult to like only exist as an adult with a disability right because that puts you in a fiscal framework that's incredibly restrictive and changes the way that you interface with the whole world the way you think about your body like you could say that I've been a medicalized body since I was 19 but you could also say that I've been like a fiscalized body that exists and my mm. identity is constructed around my relationship to capital because of my relationship to medicalization. Right. You know, like yeah. it, and just the fact that like, you know, the, the moment that, that the supposed uh, fix to, uh, you know, dis- discrimination against people with disabilities was entered into like the American uh, narrative. Right. Well, that, well like, that the land, that the landmark, um, like, Civil right. rights legislation for people with is disabilities is a deficit reduction bill. Is a deficit reduction bill, it's and no is as I a think six, of myself lo- in that context was, thirty years it later. It was talked about as a sixty billion dollar coupon. Yeah, like I was raised for Jesus Christ. I was raised for twenty years being told that disabled people are coupons, right? 
What, what if, and like, just keep thinking of different pieces of legislation, like the Civil Rights and Deficit Reduction Act, <laughs> <laughs> the Voting Rights and Deficit Reduction Act. Right. So, yeah. Not to. We're n- simply spending too much on uh, on police force. Uh, how to put it. the water bill is too high for all of these uh, police to be just running around and like gunning down civil rights protesters with like huge heavy water cannons. Like <laughs> we we simply must cut this cut this uh, cut the dress, the uh, disastrous spending on less lethal weapons. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the war production and deficit reduction. Like, we need to win the war, but uh, only like we'll allow them to invade if we can't fix the deficit. I it's mean, just, and this you know, is where it's going to have to be that way. This is where reformism starts to become dangerous because if you think about it like, starts to, <laughs> starts to. <laughs> <laughs> uh. um, well, maybe I should actually, that was a good, that was good. I, I don't, I don't mean to like constantly plug reading group, but it's been so much fun. And there's a, a part in the chapter we read last week, which talks about how, you know, mental health and and IDD policy changes that emerged uh, in the 1960s in conjunction with Medicare and Medicaid were obviously really, really important um, in the movement for deinstitutionalization. But what became pivotal in like actually making sure that some of that like translation and like freedom process could happen to some small, obviously very white and wealthy percentage of institutionalized people in the sixties was literally just because of the social security act of like 1965, because all of a sudden the deinstitutionalized people who had been like sometimes disowned by their families as children and put into these state institutions, um, suddenly they were leaving hospitals and institutions with resources Versus just being put out on the street, right? right. And, and the attachment of resources to the identity of the deinstitutionalized person was key in ensuring that people were able to remain deinstitutionalized, which is one of the critiques that obviously we get into in a lot of these discussions is that largely calling the United States deinstitutionalized is kind of like a misnomer because a lot of that population was just kind of translated right over into mass incarceration. Right. Recategorized. Right. And what happens to prisoners when they are released? They are not released with funds that are attached to their identity to help them, like, you know, be supported in their community. No, they're released with surveillance. And so then we've like not only we've not only continued institutionalization, we've criminalized and and monetized um, institutionalization in a way that's like so much more complex than ever before. Right. So if you if you tie people to funding that supports them, think of all of the different systems of capital you dismantle. Right. It's kind of amazing. Like, no wonder why no one thinks that they can pass long term care. It would be revolutionary to provide free long term care for people. Right. I mean, I I would make an analogy here and, and to think about, like, where where does any where does any sort of real energy come from in, in politics in the United States? And the answer to that is it comes from groups of people who have not been incorporated into and co-opted by the very non-mass elite party structure. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the new deal, for example, right. Not that I take that as like, you know, the, uh, Oh, let me put it this way. I use that example because 
it, it, it is what a lot of sort of, you know, uh, social Democrat or like, <laughs> you know, left liberal people take as their the sort of Rosetta Stone for like what major change looks like. But it's not the case that like, you know, in 19, you know, 30, 31, 32, the like the labor movement is a thing that is incorporated into the Democratic Party. It sits outside. Yeah, exactly. Of that uh, party. Um, and, and it's being, and the party is being contested by, you know, socialists like Debs, Mm -hmm. you have the, the, you know, period of, of time with a a, a viable third parties in in American politics. Um, and, and just like major challenges to the basic, like legitimacy of the state from outside the parties. Mm -hmm. Now, all the groups that people think of in the history when they think about like, oh, we're celebrating the history of Medicare today. <laughs> like, oh, these groups like uh, labor, they're all incorporated now yeah. within the party structure. They have no desire to rock the boat. There's the only way that you actually will see, uh, it, you know, some sort of substantial social uh, change is if there is an organized group of some kind that is not incorporated and that it is frankly hard uh to incorporate or co-opt or buy off um in the in the traditional political process and mm-hmm. not focusing like for the left to ignore uh discount or otherwise relegates uh, disability to like footnotes uh in the history of these things or the current political analysis of these things is to just uh, i think just ignore how actual sort of emancipatory change happens mm-hmm. right totally part of this you know even in like i think the hours leading up to that dnc um meeting i think there was like there were headlines um that were saying like you know uh like sanders backers like plan a coup if um if medicare for all isn't Ooh, yeah. rebellion uh-huh. right and you know obviously that didn't happen and um you know i think <laughs> there's no such thing part of it and part of the i think part of all these like bullshit arguments that we've been talking about with like the sort of unfortunate foundational arguments that um that helped get the like the ada over over the line is like you know i think respectability shit like cut respectability like cuts deep and in ways that you don't necessarily like expect it to whether it's like i think the confines of um you know i I think that so so many of these things like uh, i keep looking at this and be like okay well i get where the i get why this like seems like a respectable opinion or, or not opinion i get why this seems like a, a respectable argument or something that you're you know assuming could be like we'll look at this as like some sort of like apolitical this should like this should obviously happen which you know we've you know we're, we're guilty of every once in a while too but like <laughs> that's that's always gonna end in this in like a complete that that's all that only that only already couches stuff in like compromise and mm-hmm. whether it's just sort of saying like well doesn't that puts the focus almost always i think on looking at structures that we have around us as these sort of as these like predetermined like inflexible uh givens or something um and then you know maybe proposing well what if that given were this way you know what if that given were slightly different as opposed to just being like well no what 
why do we like why do we do this do we do this just because right. our like because previous generations do, do we do this because like we've had this on like on the books for a while like the whole supreme court precedent thing for mm-hmm. example like do we do this because like the founders because originalism do we do this because <laughs> we're like actually we're like we have a pre-founder mentality and like our entire thing is just like okay i don't know like wipe out and colonize everything you know i don't know like it's just it it's I don't that sorry this has no, gone off a, the rails but I'm just like it's, it's <laughs> yeah, ridiculous it's ridiculous to look at these things as helpful. absolutes right it's true though well I mean it's sort of I you know I hate hate to say this but the the thing that we do when we learn about what what the law is and about what change is is like and I hate that word change is yeah. like because it just ends up getting applied to these things which aren't you know, it ends up just being like a synonym for like public policy, which is horrible. Right. Right. Because what is public policy? It's it is a condensation of like class forces in in like a legal instrument. Um, but the you know, the the thing that we do is we teach people like, OK, well, ultimately what you're doing is you're not really writing something new. You're amending a title that already exists somewhere. Right. Right. Every every like major sort of piece of legislation is just an amendation to an amendation to an amendation to an amendation to an amendation right. all the way back through back to the 19th century. You're just amending these set these sediments. Right. Right. You're just like layering things on top. The but like that's not that's sedimentation. That's not like breaking through anything. It's not creating a, a new base of power um, in any way. And it's. You know, I think that like the idea of radically like revising the basic idea of like maybe there should be a structure within the Constitution that defines something that defines health or public health as something more than just like something that the state and local governments can do within their police powers. Right. Like It's not <laughs> yeah. it's not surprising to me that like health is used as a punitive thing because the way that the only place it appears in the Constitution. And if you look at state constitutions, it's like a. It is. It does appear as a paternalistic thing. Right. It's in this. In, that's in like the the sort of uh, police powers. It's not meant to be as it is in other national constitutions. Anything about like the what it means to like have rights or social rights. Um. It is. You know. I think for all of the people who are like you know celebrate the you know all these like distinctive American tradition Western traditions <laughs> of like liberty. It's like <laughs> have you ever read Larry Mead a <laughs> like state constitution? These things are the most regressive uh, like forms of law, and like the positive like powers that the states have are punitive, and that is how we think about health in the United States. It's, and like it's when so you true. lose that sight sight of that, it's it's you just become. It doesn't matter how like big or substantial or costly, <laughs> like uh, you know, deficit increasing your reform is. You're you're a reformist. Right. You know, you're not a reconstructionist. Right. I mean, we talk, that's such a good point. And maybe this is a good place to wrap. And just uh, as a final thought, I'll leave you with, you know, we talk about um, Medicaid spend downs all of the time. Right. Um, right. Why do people do Medicaid spend downs? Well, it's usually to access LTSS, like, like long-term care. Right. You, right. They, it, Medicaid has one of the only money follows the person programs that provides um, access to community-based long-term care. So what does it say? Like, what does it say that people are willing to do a Medicaid spend down to get access to this only money follows the person like support, right? 
in our entire society. Like, what does it say about any of these rules being true? Like, if if the invisible hand of the market was real, wouldn't there be other things like this under those <laughs> principles, right? Yeah. It's just, um, I think we need to be just, like, radically rethinking the context of why we pass policies. What is the effect? And this is what you talk about all the time, Phil. There's no way to measure um, the, like, the cruelty of a bill with a CBO score. You can't measure um, the the benefits, the potential benefits to people's lives with a CBO score. All you can you do... You actually have to like listen to people. Right. All, all you can do is you can take an identity group of some kind along whatever arbitrary guidelines you, you know, stake out and you reduce their entire existence and their entire value to the state to a fiscal statistic, like to a fucking amount of money and this is a conceptual problem it's not a structure it's a structural problem because because it's like because we're allowing it to remain one you know it's not a, a law of nature yeah we're just not dealing with it squarely but yeah. you know happy birthday ada <laughs> <laughs> uh happy birthday medicare and medicaid um and 55 and 30 years is a long time to let those things sit and not improve them. If you think of all of the things that we have done to change and build new military departments and like new corrections facilities and shit like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I look forward to like talking about some of the other stuff that we found um, relating to the history of like how the independent living movement interfaces with like disability and healthcare justice like going a forward. Whole, whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. We opened a Pandora's yeah. box with this one. Requires so. some further uh, analysis of the particular political philosophy mm-hmm. that led to to um, that orientation, which is a little bit troubling. Mm-hmm. But um, as a teaser, one of the uh, <laughs> one of the um, people behind it uh the the reasoning behind um some of the stuff like some of these arguments we've been talking about for ada like as uh the importance of the quote dignity of risk oh i was gonna say maybe that's a good quote to lead us out on is is the dignity of risk um you want to read that or should i you should read it all right so dejong's uh dignity of risk which was one of the concepts that was introduced as part of the fight for the ada is um, he describes it as such, quote, the dignity of risk is the heart of the independent living movement. Without the possibility of failure, the disabled person lacks true independence and the ultimate mark of humanity, the right to choose good or evil. Wow. Yeah, the the dignity of risk, that's like, that's graffiti on the bathroom walls of the University of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you want a final takeaway, it's that um, you might have learned today for the first time that the Americans with Disabilities Act is a piece of legislation passed under the framework of personal responsibility dogma, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So with that, happy anniversary to some big pieces of legislation. Happy birthday. You look great for your age. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, actually you don't, you don't look great for your age. You look incredibly backwards and stuck in the, mm-hmm. stuck in the times. So, um, yeah. So if Might you'd be like time to pass the torch, <laughs> if you like this discussion today and you want to talk more about these things with us, uh, definitely check out reading group on Sundays and, uh, 100% listen to our discussion of Larry Mead from Monday's premium episode. Um, yeah, highly recommend that one. Patreon.com slash death panel pod. And of course, you're always welcome to join the Discord, whether you are a patron or not, because a lot of people are confused on that. But 
I think with that, we'll just leave it there. Medicare for all now, including long-term care. <laughs> Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Hell yeah. See you later. Bye. <laughs> Mm-hmm.